Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. You know, we're working 47 hours a week on average in the United States alone, and, you know, with the phone and all these devices, it's almost like 24-7, right? We're like always on duty. People are on their phone an average of five hours a day. Yeah, and then the other thing is we tap our devices over 2,600 times a day and look at our phones at least every 12 minutes. We're always using these technology devices and it's created the illusion of connection when in reality, we have a loneliness epidemic in the United States and abroad. About half of Americans are lonely. 40,000 people in Japan um, die from loneliness every year. In the UK, 9 million people are lonely. 200,000 adults haven't spoken to a close friend or relative in the past month. So like if you personally were lonely, let's say, I don't know, you, you were in your apartment for a week or two doing nothing and you decided, okay, I need to take some strategic or tactical steps to not be lonely. I'm suffering from depression and loneliness. What would be, for you personally, what would be the first two or three things you would do? Yep, number one is I integrate my personal life with my work life. So I'll have meetings throughout the day, but then I'll get coffee with a friend or we'll get dinner or lunch. Um, so I like to integrate personal things into the workday. That That's work-life integration 101. Um, the second thing is with your team, we have a weekly team meeting every week, you know, noon on Mondays. Well, let's say you have no team. You're just trying to cure loneliness. Well, I think part of curing loneliness is to do something consistently, to know that every week or every day you're going to have at least one social interaction because the biggest predictor of a long life is social integration. Do you have a favorite restaurant around here? Yeah. Okay, so you're set. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, but usually I just order seamless. <laughs> Who wants to go outside? Like, if you think about it, the world, we live in an, like, in an access economy. So it's true. if you think about it, like, I could sit, when I rent, I'm renting an apartment worth many more times than I would pay for a house, right? But I'm renting it, so I'm paying like a fraction of that per month. So I don't need the money to live in a multi-million dollar place in New York City. And I can get world famous chefs to cook dinner for me and have a bike messenger deliver it to my house. And then on my big movie-sized TV screen, I can watch a 200 million production that Showtime made, it seems just for me. Yeah. And I can have everything I want. Like, why would I ever leave? It's interesting, isn't it? I, li- I live like the big, like, so much better than the biggest king 50 years ago would have lived. And it's also a choice, too. Most people would be uncomfortable trying to do that or don't know it's possible. Yeah. Or just are not in the financial position. Yeah, but even like if you live in Pittsburgh, say, you could be in do the same thing as me and it's cheaper, you know, and, uh, all right, Jay, you tell us when. Did we record all this? He, he, yeah. Everything he says is gold, yeah. huh? <laughs> I love him. All right, well, we can include that. Uh, There's no way you can be around James and not get smarter. 
That's what I tell my oh, friends. Oh, I'm going to say that about you, That's Dan. what I tell my friends. So I'm going to say that about you, Dan, because Dan Schauble, author Schaubel. of... Shabelle. <laughs> I've never said your last name out loud. Most people haven't. So I, I'm in the process of correcting people every single day now. So Dan Shabell, author of the brand new book, Back to Human, How Great Leaders Create Connection in the Age of Isolation. Now, I'm not a big... So Back to Human. I want to stick with that for a second. I'm not a big fan of subtitles because when I was reading this book, I kept thinking to myself, oh my gosh, this would make my life better not as a person in the in a business environment, but any aspect of my life better, like in terms of just how to get better at an activity or how to improve my relationships or how to improve my friendships or how to assess my priorities and, and find my passions. And there's so much useful advice in here. And I think you, you, um, you know, obviously there's a big demand in the workplace and for leaders for, for this kind of advice, but I want to, I want advice just to improve my life. Yeah. So I'm I'm so happy you said that because literally a third of our lives are spent working. And that's why I spend so much time investing in improving workplace cultures. Because if you have, if you're in a good work environment where your leader is empathetic and supportive, you're going to have a better personal life. But that's if, true. if the opposite happens, if you're in a very toxic environment, you're going to come home and you're going to complain to your family and friends, and that's going to hurt your relationships and, and even isolate you more. Yeah. So, so. I will, I'll, okay, so you, you got me intrigued now about the leader thing too, because uh, uh, I agree, and I want to know how to be, uh, how how you, what your studies have shown you as uh, terms of better leader. But also, I want to mention incredibly valuable. If you Google this guy's name next to the word Forbes, you've written, you've you've interviewed two thousand. I mean, I thought I've interviewed a lot of people and a lot of interesting people. You've interviewed. 2000 of the most interesting people in modern history for Forbes magazine. I being the least important of those people that, no, you've, that you've interviewed. James. But like who who are some of the names of, of people that you've interviewed? I mean, I know a lot of them, but like who are you who and and it's and I'm not going to ask you who are your favorites because that's they're all your favorites, I probably, but what are some notable ones? I did a whole, I was the first person to cover all the sharks on Shark Tank including the celebrities for for Forbes. I think one of the big notable ones was Colin Powell because of how oh, yeah. I got it and the experience in the interview. How did you get it? So if I wanted to just call up Colin Powell and say, hey, come on my podcast, there's zero chance. I have zero, zero chance. chance. Yeah. So here's how it happened. I saw you had a new book coming out because I look at books eight months out to see who's yeah. doing what when. And um, So you saw he I had pitched. a new book coming out. Yep. How do you so again, let's just walk through all the tactics because a lot we're of we're gonna do it. Yeah, a lot there's six hundred thousand podcasts out there. There's other interviewers, other people. How do you find someone that's unreachable how do you because you, because by the way your spreadsheet of how to get in touch with people is like the most valuable email i get every month so and it's for you don't no, I, don't, I, don't, I don't share it with anyone believe me that that's it's a, valuable because it's scarce yeah no i don't and I it's don't. me giving away my special sauce to everyone that, yeah. that I admire and that has a, has a great platform who's promoting something positive in the world. But like, how do you, what do you do? What's your technique? So, yeah. so how do you, first off, how do you find out Colin Powell has a book coming out six months from now? And why is that important information? Yep. It's important because if you know what books are coming out, you see what's happening in culture. It's a sign of culture because publishers were putting money behind it. People are investing their time in writing the books and promoting them. So I have a pretty good sense of what's going on in the world based on my research. I spend hours every month looking at who has what book coming out when, and it's usually within a six to eight month time period. So up, in, it's actually up until now next April. 
right? And seeing so, books so, coming out. And the idea is because, like, Colin Powell probably is normally unreachable, correct? But because presumably the publisher gave him a multi-million dollar advance, they're not going to want him to just sit at home when they publish the book. They're going to want him to work for the millions of dollars. But we're using Colin Powell, Powell in quotes, but really any you know huge sure. person. They have to guarantee a number of interviews. Not in every contract, but I'll give you an example. Uh, Phil Knight. Uh, Shoe dog, not yep, head of Nike. Chairman of, yep, head of Nike, founder of Nike. He only guaranteed like three interviews. So I couldn't even get him. I reached out like months and months in advance. Uh, Michelle Obama has a book coming out the same day as mine. Impossible. Like you not only have to have a CBS This Morning platform, but you have probably had to reach out two years ago because people started wow. reaching out a year ago. So people are on to this, that, that you know, there's certain people who are having books out soon. The CEO of Netflix has a book coming out next year. I'm sure people are already trying to touch base with Penguin to book him on their show. So it's, it's a timing thing. Ray Dalio, I reached out eight months beforehand because I knew that all the business book publications were going to jump on him, and that's how I was able to interview him. And that's how I was able to interview him. Yeah. I also interviewed him. And now he's got another book coming out too. Tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So do, are you interviewing him for that one? No, I'm not. I, I couldn't reach him either for this yeah. one. Yeah. So, but, um, okay, so. Back uh, to Colin Powell. Colin Powell. Yeah. Uh, you, 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 you obviously... You could see in trade publications, okay, so and so, let's say it's Simon and Schuster pays X millions mm -hmm. for to Colin Powell for his book, and it's about this. So you know they're going to be very interested in promoting it, and obviously Forbes is an international platform, and that's it wasn't like, enough. So here's what happened: uh, is I reached out, and I said, "This is who I am. I've already interviewed you know 50 people you've heard of before. Here's a sample of some of my and my the publishers columns. must know you must know you already yeah, at this point. Yeah, yeah, everyone, yeah. And so I reached out, and they're saying he will only do this if it's in the magazine. I wasn't writing for the magazine. So in my head immediately, I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to use this opportunity as leverage to start writing for the magazine. And I was right. Yeah. And so I was able to start writing for the magazine and getting paid to write for the magazine because I brought them Colin Powell, even though I guess they could have got him on their own. They didn't know he had a book coming out. Those connections weren't made. But, so but this, I was able to interview the magazine and then I got to interview other people for the magazine as a result. Right, so your platform got bigger. Because people, people, even though probably more people hit the website, I mean, that's why the private equity firm, I forget what the name was, bought, bought into Forbes, was for Forbes.com. Yeah. But uh, there's, a, there's a certain status to being in print, just like there's a certain status to being on TV versus YouTube, even though YouTube gets millions more views. There's, I, I don't know how long that status lasts, but it, it exists right now. So and some you, of it has to do with age too. Like I couldn't interview Judge Judy because she only does interviews for magazines and traditional media, hmm. which That's is interesting. interesting. But other people are so much more flexible. Yeah. Like, even when I interviewed Donald Trump, like he was like, oh, dot com, you know, it's not for the magazine, but hey, this is where things are going. He literally said that during the interview. I'm like, yeah, so he understands we'll, that. We'll, we'll get to him in on. a second. <laughs> but but uh, uh, I, think, I think what's very interesting in that lesson is is the idea of, you know, everybody always talks like, oh, you got to hustle 24 hours a day. No, you don't. You just have to find the, you know, you build your platform, you build your platform, you build your platform. And then this was a case where the right piece hit the right part. Like you needed a, a name enough to you, to leverage, to get it, to, to lift you up, to make your platform a little bigger. And you were, you were kind of building this whole 
uh, underneath this whole, uh, you know, below the iceberg, that was the tip of the iceberg is you writing for the magazine. The below the iceberg is you doing hundreds of interviews for the dot com to get you to this point. But that hustling, it's not 24 hours a day. It's, it's being strategic. It's like knowing who's got the book coming out, like every step of the way you're strategic and then strategically using that to if you didn't go into that magazine, you could probably have gone to another magazine and, and gotten in that or gone on CNBC or something or whatever. But I had already earned the trust with the dot-com because I had already interviewed hundreds of people. So it was easier to make my way into doing the magazine that way. I think it's the subtle art of persistence with patience. So I just go for it, James. I don't even care if I'm trying to interview Leonardo DiCaprio, which hasn't happened yet. But if it doesn't happen and it takes me 10, 20, 50 years, I'm okay with it. You, you That's even... the secret. It's taken me, Tony Robbins was six and a half years it took me. Yeah, I, re I remember a couple others you told me a couple years ago, you told me so-and-so took you three years. I forgot who you were mentioning. Maybe it was Richard Branson or- Branson I've done three times now. The last one was in person, which was, which was really exciting. But he's also somebody who is like a big self-promoter. He wants to get the word out in every single medium. So he's very smart and his team is extremely savvy yeah, and they're open on my to pockets. all that. Exactly. So, but I think I might've used the email address. I think I might've, yeah. <laughs> but- uh, uh, so so tell me some of the things you've learned from from I mean when I interview someone I don't think of myself as a reporter interviewing someone I think of myself as someone who's calling people I really admire and have on the podcast and I want to improve my life and get better so I'm I'm very selfishly doing a podcast so like how has your life gotten better from these 2000 interviews like what habits have you sort of absorbed because you've interviewed 2000 of the most successful people in the world yeah, I would say number one is a lot of them emphasized it's all about who you surround yourself with, which sounds simple, but it does have a huge impact if you're around very positive people who bring out the best in you, who are very supportive. And so, yeah, over the over the past years, I've really been conscious about who I surround myself with, and I really want people who are doing great things and are very supportive. They don't have to be ultra successful. I have friends who are all across you know, the uh, income gap. But I want to be across people who are very positive because that'll make me more positive. And, you know, as well as anyone in the world, like we have ups and downs and ups and downs. But if you're around positive people who are, you know, supportive and empathetic and are happy to be around you, that has a huge impact on your whole life and mentality. It is, it is so true. I would say, you know, other than kind of just health like health is obviously you can't you can't be the best in the world if you're sick in bed so that aside i think who you surround yourself with has to be the main thing not the only thing but the main thing i've learned from just interviewing all these incredibly successful people so it's nice to hear you know you've gotten that same sense from them and, and it's people, made all people the are nicer than you think too my mom will always tells her girlfriends that after i interviewed goldie hahn she called me to thank me and my that like has stuck with my mom for for years now um so it's a, like tyrese gibson was a great one i was on the phone with him I, he co-authored a book with rev ron years ago but when i was on the phone with him like i had the recording like it was just so exciting like you could he was just happy to be there he was thankful he i think he was like partying on a, a a bus. I don't know exactly what was going on in the background, but the it was the energy that got me really excited. So it's it's the thrill of getting the interviews, and then it's it's part of this mosaic of of people who I've talked to. So it gives me a better outlook on life to see what's possible. And I look at my own life, and it's very easy to get excited 
about the future because I've already had some wins, I've had some successes, and I've met people who are inspiring me regularly. And they're coming from all walks of life. I mean, I've interviewed astronauts, I've interviewed magicians, you in the same way. You've interviewed people across the board. You're like, wow, anything could be possible. But it also makes you reflect in and think of, but I need to still stay in my lane and focus on what I know I'm the best at because that's what they did too. Yeah, they stayed in their lane. I'm not trying to open up restaurants. I am focused on the future of work and helping my generation succeed at every phase of their career. What With Back to Human, it's leadership. 40% of people my age have a management title and above. They need coaching. They feel isolated. And, and that's part of why I wrote the book. I mean, you've been in the hi hiring or the, the um, employment space forever working with- And I want to be in forever. Right. And because uh, I remember one time I was on the board of a, of a, um, a hiring company and a staffing company and brought you in there to, to present your stuff. And this has been a, a passion of yours. But it, but it remind, the stay in the lane really reminds me like, you know, Penn, Penn Gillette started off early. He went to a, he went to clown school and then became a magician. Like these people, you know, it's not that you can't change later on in life because many people do reinvent themselves later on in life. But, you know, there's a certain, like you say, persistence to it and resilience and they surround themselves with good people. Uh, we were just talking to Amy Morin, who, do you know her? She wrote 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. She said uh, the number one thing for her is... Uh, don't feel sorry for yourself. So, uh, and and the I've never seen you would never see Richard Branson like, oh man, I suck. Like never. he doesn't feel sorry for himself. So he just goes and starts doing charities and rebuilding an island and finding people on his plane. I think you can relate to this too. You have to believe in yourself before other people believe in you. So back in the day when I first started, I, it started with a blog. And I, I had no subscribers, no views, no comments. My mom couldn't even figure out how to comment because it was blogger. Right. And so I just kept out of 12 blog posts uh, you know, a week on top of the full-time job working 50 to 60 hours. And then I launched a magazine. And, and I just did it because I knew it was right. I felt like I was the right person at the right time. I wanted to help my generation. So I was doing it for the right reasons. And it built and built and built. And of course, as things were becoming more successful and I was getting out there, there was cyberbullying. Friends were like, what is he doing? And then after a certain point, maybe after the first book, people were like, okay, we get it now. Like he's on to something. Well, I think the cyberbullying probably never really ends. It just happened the other day. Yeah. Yeah. Like what, what happened? <laughs> uh, a former Trump um, White House guy retweeted me uh, and just said some like comment like, oh, what does he know? He's not a dad. But he he interpreted what I was saying the wrong way. And I was just saying that, you know, it's you can't be grateful and, uh, you know, miserable at the same time. Yeah, well, what's and, that? But people, but people, you know, interpret things their own way. And, but I, if this was 10 years ago, I'd be really upset, like, you know, being yeah. cyber bullied and, you know, bullied most of my life. You know, my mom would be upset about it. It would be a huge issue. And I think over time, you know, getting rejected, you know, getting bullied, all of these negative things that could happen, you're more accepting of it because you're you're used to it in a way. So, so you've so been through so much. You, like you can you can get through if you're if a company you start or invest in now fails, well, you've been through it before. Yeah, no, and I if it's the first time though, that's the hardest. The first time took, I would say, a good five years. The yeah. second time took about two or three years, and then after that, I could bring it. I could start bringing it down to days, so it, it does get faster. But okay, so two thousand people you've interviewed. You've interviewed 
tons of billionaires, entrepreneurs, athletes, White House officials, Donald Trump. And my favorite was Hulk Hogan. Your favorite's Hulk because Hogan? how I got the interview was It's awesome. so weird, like, because I've also had Ryan Holiday on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Like, and he wrote about Hulk, a book about Hulk Hogan and Peter Thiel. It's so weird that Hulk Hogan ever comes up on this podcast. But what did you learn from Hulk Hogan? So the story is this. When I was, I think, seven years old, I saw him wrestle Andre the Giant in Western Massachusetts, where my family's from. And then years later, after I interviewed at least 1,200 people, I interviewed a guy named Ryan Blair. Very, very successful guy worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And back- How, how did he make his hundreds of millions? Uh, a company called Visalis. I think it's like a MLM company. Okay. And so I interviewed him and Forbes had a relationship with Yahoo at that time. And Yahoo put it on the homepage because it was how we went from, you know, a gangster to a very successful person. And it was an incredible story for his first book. And- it went, it hit the homepage, and it, hitting the homepage of Yahoo back then was massive. 42 million people would see it. And so he called me. He's like, you know, that article changed my life. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this guy's already so wealthy, so successful, and this article had that much of an impact on him. That's mm-hmm. amazing. And I looked at his website, and Hulk Hogan was a sponsor, mm-hmm. like a spokesperson. And so I was like, oh, my God, I'd love to interview Hulk Hogan. Gave me a cell phone number. And, you know, he, Hogan lives in Florida. I, I think he still does. And I called Hogan. He lives in Tampa. Yep. Which I'm going for a wedding soon. And I should hit him up. And so I, I called him and it was just amazing. I learned a lot about interviewing when I interviewed him, actually. Because in the beginning, I said, you know, here's a moment of when I saw you when I was a little kid and what it meant to me. And it completely disarmed him. And in a good way. So he just opened up. He would tell me things that I didn't even ask him. So, so when you say he was like telling me about his love life, and you know, it's hard to talk about your divorce and children and all this stuff. He would say it because he felt comfortable. He felt like I was on his team because you were able to kind of find something relatable and even vulnerable to share, and that kind of that connection gets built, and then he everything sort of flows down that connection. But it's all about disarming them, and and I've learned that that is such a powerful technique. You want to be on their team so they feel more comfortable sharing things that they might not even share with other people. But some of these guys do so many interviews. I feel like it's like they're they've had so many questions asked. They have a pre-programmed response for every possible question, even the disarming ones. Like like take a guy like Colin Powell. How did you disarm him? That guy's been interviewed a billion times. I think it was ask him questions that he's not, he's just never asked. I asked him questions about, you know, raising money and being an entrepreneur and like things that he was never asked. He's asked about the military and politics. And so by, by focusing on entrepreneurship, which, which was a topic a, maybe a little bit outside of his comfort zone. I think right, he's that probably used to being Russian. asked about like politics. Yeah. So it's not just, it's disarming them in a way where you're challenging them a little bit to, you know, push them into a new area which they don't talk about as often because then that opens them up too and gets them thinking. You know, and you know it's a good interview when when they say, oh, that's a good question. That's like the best thing, right? It's because it's typically something that they haven't heard before. It challenges them and thus they open up because they're being putting a lot of thought on, on it because they're on the spot. So what's a, who's another person that you successfully disarmed? Um, that was hard. What was yeah, hard Donald Trump. Crack? That's 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 an yeah. Easy how do you one. disarm him? This because great. he seems so much always in control of his frame. So this was a long story. This was over six years, and I said someday I'm going to do this. 
and interview him. Now, this is before he was president. This is, you know, 2014. And so I was like, okay, how do I interview Trump? Okay, I'm going to interview all the people he knows to build the story of why I should interview him. And so I had the foresight when I was 23 years old, I was interviewing Ivanka, Larry King, just everyone he praised on TV, basically. Mm-hmm. And then I, he had a book come out, co-authored with Robert Kiyosaki, who I in, had interviewed before. So again, part of the story, I've interviewed all the people you know and care about and, and have worked with or- Who are you or, saying that to? To like Donald Trump's like book publisher okay. eventually. And then that became the connection to his assistant. And then I got him on the phone. And I, I literally told him the story. Oh, okay, on the but phone. wait, 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 wait. Um, uh, um, <laughs> we, we talk to book publishers all the time. They seldom, if it's a no, they say no before you get to the assistant. So how did you get to the assistant? So I got to the assistant either by the PR firm or by the publisher. But the story I built is why I got the opportunity to interview him. And then I disarmed him by telling him that same story. I said, oh, I was amazing interviewing your daughter years ago. I just talked to Robert Kiyosaki, your co-author. So I was getting him comfortable and he thought I was on his side during the interview, which I I didn't ask him any tough questions. Uh, That's not, you know, my lane, right? right? Um, But I asked him, I asked him questions about, you know, how do you build a career? How do you hire someone? And he said, the one thing that I remember from the interview that stood out is, that he talked about hiring people on the basis of loyalty. So he looks at your resume and if you have job hopped too many times, he doesn't want to hire you because he doesn't want you to job hop after a year. So it's kind of like a little old school. You mentioned that in this but book it's actually. True. You, you, it's true. You, you I think loyalty is still important. And I think you're going to be more loyal to a company if you have more friends there, especially best friends. And there's a ton of research on that. But yet people in the workplace lack friends. So in the in the study I partnered with what, with Virgin Pulse, we interviewed over two thousand managers and employees in ten countries, and seven percent of the global workforce has zero friends at work, and half has uh, five or fewer. So we lack work friends, but we we spend so much time at work. So seven those seven percent do they tend to be happy at work? No, isolated, lonely, and more likely to quit. Hmm. And more likely to kill themselves. We didn't go you that asked far, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> next curious. time you can consult in the next survey. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, so uh, do you think Donald Trump was a good leader? Uh, the, so, given that he was hiring on the basis of loyalty, did it work for him? I'm not even talking about him being president. I'm just curious about him at the Trump. You'd have to. You'd have to almost look at his retention numbers, and I, I just I'm not privy to that. Mm-hmm. But uh, you always look at retention numbers because it's a metric and it's associated with an expense, right? Mm-hmm. So, if you have a high attrition rate that means it's going to cost you a lot of money and time and productivity because it takes time to hire someone it takes months potentially to hire someone so you have you you had this like and still have this like ideal job of uh interviewing people for forbes and again you that's get... not even my ideal i have i run two companies so it's like uh, my side passion right but how did you you, you said you were working full-time uh, at some job 50 to 60 hours a week and then everybody needs to this is the this is the kind of the important lesson which is that uh, you can't just quit your job and start your dream job. No. That's the problem. People think, oh, I, I hate this. I'm going to go pursue my dreams instead. It doesn't work like that. You still had to do the 50 or 60 hours a week while you were constructing your dream yeah. job. And so what made you decide to put in that extra work, which nobody wants to do ever, and and go for something new? And what were you going for? Like, What, what were you hoping to achieve? I think that's an amazing question. Uh, Yes. Yes, that, that is the question, right? I, you know, 
my parents are smart. They said, don't quit your J job until you're making enough money and can project enough revenue in a given year. And so that's why I stuck it out three and a half years at EMC while writing the 12 blog posts you know, each week and starting the magazine, which was quarterly. What was the magazine? Personal branding magazine. So everything in the first chapter of my life was around personal branding. And that's because in high and your school first book and college, was on personal branding. Yeah, Me 2.0, right at the height of the Web 2.0 movement and the collapse of the U.S. economy. Me, um, you just say you wrote Me 2.0, Four Steps to Building Your Future, and Promote Yourself, The New Rules for Career yeah, Success. Each book helps people, get, people to get to the next phase of their career. And I have to be at that next phase in order to coach them through that phase. So right, that, so that's you, the long-term vision. So, so you went from that 50, 60 hours a week, and it took you three and a half years. Yeah, I was what, so patient. What was happening in those three and a half years that were building? Like, How did you measure success? How did you measure that you were getting closer to your success? How did you define success? Everything has come from the last thing I did. So the blog, from the blog, it taught me a lot about entrepreneurship. I built a community. People would comment on the blog, and I had the foresight to say, oh, wow, these people are commenting, which means they're invested, which means they might sponsor the magazine. So the magazine was my MBA because I was doing everything with the magazine. I was managing 100 contributors, columnists, editors. I was publishing it. I, was des I designed it. I did everything for the magazine. Um, and by doing everything and really being hands-on, I learned so much about business and what it, what it takes. So that was my MBA. And from there, that inspired and gave me a bigger platform to do the book. And then once the book started doing well, I got hired to speak. So I launched the speaking career. And I was, I think I told you this before, for the speaking career, I was, everything I ever do, I get paid nothing for in the beginning. Right, so blogging zero, the magazine zero, uh, my whole research career started nothing. The first few studies I didn't get paid for, and now we're up to forty-five research studies. With next year, it'll be a million dollars of funding I've raised, mm. um, with a capacity of over ninety thousand people in in over twenty countries. So that's like my favorite thing to do. That the interview started with zero, and I interviewed a professor, and then it just went from there. So I've I've learned over time. You, you have to start with nothing. Like even Instagram, I had 4,000 fo followers several months ago and I had the humility after building all of these things throughout my, all these platforms throughout my whole career to take a step back and say, hey, I'm going to build a whole Instagram profile by just commenting on people I like. I comment on your profile, Lewis Howe's profile, Jay Shetty's profile regularly, plus post two times a day, seven days a week. So I'm fully committed with stories. Um, two so times I'm, a day on, on Instagram? I'm committed. How many so, followers you got now? I have about 30,000. Okay. From zero, over from four, 4,000. So um, I like starting with nothing. I like, you know, my, my literary agent always says, uh, you know, when my, comp my research company was acquired, he, he emailed my business partners. He's like, congratulations. You just, you know, uh, acquiring Dan's company and having Dan as one of your partners is like, you know, ha hiring 25 people. That's, so well, I've, I've created, I, I, I've created, I known I've, you this I've long. created efficiencies through doing things so many different. I can do three research studies at the same time, whereas PwC and some of the biggest professional service firms in the world will take months with millions of dollars of funding and, and a huge de research department to do one study. Right, because they that's always the case with like young up-and-coming firms and agencies up against the big behemoths is that, that you have less infrastructure, so you could charge less, maybe... The 
biggest companies in the world won't hire you because you're not, you know, PwC, but you build up and then eventually you get acquired. I think that's uh, like a standard model. Yeah, I mean, to me, that, like, that's, when, that's when, actually a very standard model to make your first million. Yeah, when say. when Oracle says, "Hey, Dan, we're going to work with you," they're saying no to a lot of companies. Right, and if you get basically ten Oracles, you're going to get acquired from by a bigger company who wants to have Oracle on their client list. Yeah. So, so, but I'll 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 get to that in a, in a second. I'm still interested in how you kind of moved, you know, from one thing to the other. So you started doing these interviews for Forbes. You leveraged the interview with Colin Powell to start writing for the print magazine for Forbes. Each time you're leveraging to the next thing. But before Forbes, I was writing for business. I was the youngest columnist at Business Week. And then I was doing it on my own blog, personalbrandingblog.com. So, you, so it's I've always been doing the interviews. You, you it's used, just you know f- from the Forbes because that's the last like 800 interviews I did for well, Forbes. Well, and also that's where you wrote about me. So that's Yeah, where. multiple times. Um, <laughs> but but uh, so then you leverage that into getting your first book deal, which, which is never easy. People don't realize this. It is never easy to get a book deal, particularly in Re- today's environment. Rejected by 70 out of 70 agents and two publishers. I got it on my own, which it's got to be almost impossible at this point. Like it's got to be really hard. Um, I and I, ha- I was like laughed up by a lot of other authors who I just, you know, who, why'd they who, laugh at you? They're just like, oh, you're because I was 23. They're like, what do you know? Why you, you, you shouldn't be writing a book? And I'm like, I, this is it. I know I have because the blog became the book, the first book. I mean, yeah. I had over a thousand blog posts. So, and then after the first book, when it, when it hit number one in Japan, it had like all the all the recognition. You've received a little ton of recognition yourself, so you know how it is. It's incredible. It's a great honor. Then it took me it took me forever to get that second book deal. I was rejected by every single publisher besides one. And then after the second one became a New York Times bestseller and did so well, still I was re- the third for this book. It was rejected by every single publisher besides one. So Why, what, what the I, world what, it, the, what the world has done is I, it's impossible for me to develop a big ego because every time it, I, it, that even try, tries to come out of me, I get slammed. Well, first which off, totally resets me. First off, if you're a bestseller everywhere, why doesn't that give you a free pass on the next book? Like, no, wouldn't wouldn't, wouldn't no the publisher pass. say, okay, we'll we'll throw you a smaller advance, but we will take you? No, it's a ruthless publishing world. No, you have to really. So every time, every time I get a book deal, I cry because I, it is so much effort that goes into it. It's incredible. The story of getting this thing published is is oh, just oh, okay, it's but crazy. The reason I don't want to hear the story yet <laughs> is because like. I don't even care who the publisher is. Why don't you just self-publish and slap your publishing, make your own little publishing company, slap, you know, DS publications on the side here and publish. Why don't you self-publish? And then you're in charge of the marketing. You can make deals with big email lists and and other influencers and you get a bigger percentage of their revenues. Because my mark, I view corporations as the new bookstores. So I want to distribute my ideas within corporations and build a speaking career or serving corporation because I'm already doing it. I mean, I'm already working with the biggest companies in the world and they want they are looking for traditionally published books. So for my objective, publishing traditionally, even though it's hard and stressful and you deal with so much rejection, is still worth that. I, Will it be but, worth that in five years? I'm not sure. But in the model today, it still makes sense. I see. So, so if you're speaking at Oracle, say... Yeah. And you say to them, look, I'll do a speaking gig for X dollars. We'll do a research survey for X dollars. And call my. you have to call my publisher, buy books for all the managers who, who are involved. They don't want to call DS Publications. They want to no. call the Hachette Publishing Group. Yeah, exactly. Are you sure? That's what, I'm, that's what I'm seeing still, James. And it's like I got 100 brands on board for this thing, like 
name a brand, Johnson & Johnson, GE, What do you all, mean got, on, IBM. got them on board? Uh, the, what I did was I did a whole nomination process for their most senior young leader in each of the companies. So all the executives nominated people. And so the companies are investing. They're buying books. They're supporting the book in, in various ways, book launches. I'm on, when, wait, I go, wait, when I'm going I, on I, book tour, they're coming with me. Wait, I don't understand. So Johnson & Johnson, use this as an example. Yes. What, 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 what did you, you reached out to them and said you were coming up with a new book. I guess you've already had a relationship with them either through business or speaking. Actually, I didn't. Okay, so you reach so out. So I use book. I view books as an excuse to open up new relationships. So everything is used to leverage into the next clients. thing. Yeah, and so actually, so one of the things I, I've always it, wanted- it, se it seems like your business model as a, as a personal <laughs> life. Sorry for interrupting. No, I love it. But but basically, everything you do, it's like it's something you're interested in love doing. Like you want to write blog posts, you want to do a magazine, you want to write a book, you want to start co research companies, you want to do this that. But then you start off cheap you're persistent and persistent and persistent to figure out almost backdoor ways to get to the highest possible clients whether it's interviewing a colin powell or having oracle as a client or getting a speaking gig or getting a book deal then maybe you get some money on the book deal but you're instantly thinking okay what does a book deal lead to well it leads to speaking gigs it makes me uh, more likely to be hired as a consultant Maybe it uh, is an open door, or what you're about to describe with J and J. So, so book, tell how the book, book deal is got an you into J and J. To know the most senior young leader at a hundred of the best companies in the world, how, how, like and I, to network with all of them. Like, how, like, so I don't do that. Like, how do you do that? Uh, well, I created what is called the Millennial 100 or M100. So uh -huh. it's like my Forbes list. Uh -huh. But the book gave me like the leverage to do that through the big publisher. So, so you contacted. I contacted whether you. I contacted executives. I contacted PR people at the different companies. People I already knew. Some people who were featured in the last book, and then I pooled all of it together. And it took 850 connection points in order to do that. Phone calls, emails, everything, because a lot of people didn't want to be a part of the book. So you called up. Who'd you call, Johnson and Johnson? I think it was the PR person. And you said, look, or or it was I saw I saw a, a rock star Johnson and Johnson, and I reached out to him. I'm like, I think you should be part of this group. You are, you know. And then they have to get permission from their publicity department. But yep, that's it needs easy. approval, and I needed age ages too because you had to be a, a young leader. So between so, the ages of 25 and 35. -ish. So you basically created a list that you were going to write about in either Forbes or a book or or whatever you were going to publish in some way. Yes, and that gives you an in. Into a, so then you have a contact point in every company. Now, okay, using my theory about your personal business model, mm. how do you now leverage that to the, what What are you going to use that for? It's the most longest term play ever. It, the only way you could really leverage what I'm doing is to commit to doing this forever. When I'm 90, I want to do this. I see Ken Blanchard. He's almost 80. So he's the author of The One Minute Manager. He speaks for free at some of the conferences in my industry. To me, that is incredibly inspiring. So I look at that. I'm like, hey, I started even younger than him. I'm definitely going to be able to do this. I think the master plan is I think that a percentage of them will end up becoming the C-suite at some of the biggest companies in the world and who's going to be their, their CEO coach. Hopefully me because I've, I've been part of their path. Right, That's like a, the longest a, term vision. Which is a multi-million dollar income. So it's, it's even though, uh, you know, it might not pay off in the short term, to me, I'm doing this forever. So it doesn't even matter to me. 
So the, I, and I love what I I love this. This is so fun. I love the story. I love bringing people together and then networking with them. They're coming on book to where I speak and then I moderate a panel of two, three, or four of them. So wait, wait. So 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 describe how that happens. So yes. where are you speaking? So again, we're leveraging the book <laughs> plus the Millennial One Hundred now to get a speaking opportunity somewhere. Where are you speaking? Yep. So it's conferences and companies, and the so way like a conference might be, you know, hiring to hiring three the conference of the year on yes. hiring. So here's why it's smart. Originally, I'm like, oh, this could be a fun idea, but think about it. Now it's not hiring me. It's not you. Don't just get me. You get two, three, or four senior leaders at companies that help market your conference. Because you'll pitch to the conference. I'll mod- I'll do a talk like you asked, but I'll also moderate a panel, and I'm going to bring in seven people from the Millennial 100, the prestigious Millennial 100 list, and then you get back to Johnson & Johnson and Oracle and whoever else, and you now they're all grateful to you. All these I can provide more value than almost any speaker on the circuit because I'm bringing marketing. I'm bringing brands to you. Right, and the companies themselves, they probably send a bunch of people because their executives yes. coming, and they'll advertise it because they're, and then when there's news about the conference, they'll spread it to, it's in their in, internal employee newsletter, written by you maybe, like a yeah, summary and I of just, the panel. And I also just started a social media campaign. I created social media badges for all of them to share on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, on on LinkedIn and Facebook. So that helps build a relationship with the conference so they can it ask makes you them about next look year. Good. It's, everything is interrelated. And the company is going to work with you when you call them the next time and this executive, you're going to get to know him when you're when he comes flies to the conference to speak on the panel because of you. Uh next time you call him and say, "Hey, how's it going?" or "Hey, can I send you this research report?" He's going to say, "Sure, Dan, send it along." And that's just this it's the long game. So so and and then they be, they could become part of the network if they're in HR or they they introduce me to someone in HR in their company because we have a network of over with Future Workplace we have a network of over forty uh, HR leaders from the top companies so we're trying Dan, to build you keep that network topping every single thing I so there was the money one hundred <laughs> then you're networking them all together with building your relationships with conferences and the companies okay what are you doing with the HR people. So, so now you're in the door with HR. That, yes. That's your goal. You're getting in the door at HR because they're the ones who want the research um, reports on uh, employees. And by the way, the reason I'm going through this is not so people can do research reports for HR departments, but this is a life, a carefully drawn life map, which I've seen you over the decade execute on. And it's bit by bit by bit. And it's how careers should be thought. Like I have a friend who literally just sits by the phone waiting for it to call. It's never, no one's ever going to call. No one ever is going to bless you and say, you're the one who I'm blessing to succeed. You have No one's to- waiting around trying to do you a favor. Right. So you have, to, you have to take the initiative because when people see your passion and you putting out great work that's benefiting people, then the opportunities come to you. But it, it takes time. And it's all about everything you leverage, every, everything you build, and then connecting the dots between them to leverage the next thing. So yes. now you're saying to the guy who's on the Millennium 100, can you please introduce me to your HR department so I could send them a research report? So now what what happens? Then they can join our network. So their company pays a certain amount of money every year. And they go to, I, we put on four conferences, two on the East Coast, two on the West Coast at member-hosted um, offices. So like Johnson & Johnson will host a conference? Correct. We, we've done like a, a small meetup what, there, what's but a, what's GE a, Crotonville is the one coming up. Okay, so like what's the benefit to GE? What's the benefit to GE to host all these other companies at their place? They want to tell the HRs, the HR people at other companies all the great work they're doing. 
Why do they want to do that? Because they want to promote what they're doing as a best practice to gain industry thought leadership. But they what, want to be known as why don't they a want thought leader the, in the future of work. But why don't they want all the other companies to have disastrous work environments while they have the best work environment? Because that's not what they want, Chance. <laughs> Seriously, like we're what? trying to create we're trying to create a better workplace for everyone, regardless of what company, industry, and location. I feel like there's got to be another agenda, though. And, because well, their you, they agenda, are in their agenda is they're sharing best practices, mm-hmm. right? It's a network; they're sharing best practices, and and you know we're kind of like a career center too. You know, if they're looking for another job in HR, they now have a network of people that can help lead them to the next that, role. That's that's what I'm asking. That's, a, they, that's the self-interest part. They do have part. their agendas. There's yeah. a self-interest part, and then there's the learning and development part. I think that's why people join our network. Okay, so you always have to, while you're doing this leverage, you uh, uh, everybody has a personal agenda, but you always have to appeal to kind of a, a more macro kind of uh, benevolent agenda as well. That, yeah. that is sincere. And now that they're part of the network, we're selling them other things. So it's a whole process. So wait, <laughs> Because so- now we, we just launched an artificial intelligence course. We were the first ones to develop an artificial intelligence for HR. So now when they join the network, then we upsell them to try and get them to buy into the course for their employees because employees today, as you know, artificial intelligence is a very big topic. And if you are only 6% of... Uh, HR departments have implemented artificial intelligence, so it's early on. And if you're an HR person to, who understands AI and can apply it in their job, you have a massive advantage over the next decade. So, so then you, so what happens is you leverage these conferences to build a network, and then you're you almost have like a mini Gartner group about HR, where you'll take different niches and make the first reports about them, and now you can sell that into the network, and they pay per, per seat or whatever, and you build your business. So, so we started off with an empty blog, and 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 really you, empty. It's still there. If you, it's it was actually not even called personal branding blog. It was driven to succeed. So, so you started off with like October two thousand six. So, so twelve years ago, you start off with this blank blog. You are writing article after article after article. You build up to hundreds of interviews. You leverage that into name brand places like Business Week and then Forbes. You leverage that into print Forbes, you leverage that into three book deals, which you lever- leveraged into speaking gigs and then consulting gigs and then um, uh, uh, then then a business because then you're because you have a platform, you're able to create this millennial 100. So you call every company and you leverage that into, you know, hey, well, you're on the millennial 100. I'm, have, I'm at Forbes. And then you leverage that into building better relationships with the conferences. You start doing conferences, leverage that into the network which you then write these reports to sell into the network. That just shows you how smart you are. <laughs> you just traced all of that and made it into a story. But that, I think, <laughs> that's describing your career. I think that's how everybody should think about their careers. Like I never you, set out to do any of this. If you want to be an actor, that's what you have to do. If you want to be a writer, that's what you have to do. If you want to be a golf player, that's what you have to do. Or an astronaut. Like, you know, if you want to be an astronaut... That's what you have to do, uh, which you've probably seen on your interviews with astronauts. You know, oh, where they, really there's some version of that. Like I've interviewed three astronauts, or some version of that for each astronaut I've I've interviewed. But I think if everybody thinks of their their life plan in terms of okay, how do I take that e- that easier next step? Maybe I want to be the CEO of GE at the end, but how do I take that easier next step and then just okay, I got it. The very first thing I'm gonna think of is what do I leverage that with to get, and then you just keep on leveraging. It's all about having a strong foundation. And the other thing that I think about is I used to have these like 20 year goals. 
I don't even do that anymore. What ends up happening, it's all natural. One thing directs me to the next thing, which directs me to the next thing. But I always need to have a competitive advantage. On Instagram, I wouldn't even post unless I was verified. Like I need, there's got to be something at this point to give me an advantage. And if there's not, it's hard for me to psychologically get invested in it. So, so with the book, I've already done two books. So I have created a whole system to how to write and launch a book. Like I need some advantage at this point in order for me to invest time because I'm doing enough things that I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I love what I'm doing. Right. So at some point in this process of leveraging up, leveraging up, leveraging up, you need, but that'll just happen naturally though. Right? You'll do enough things that you can say, well, look, I did this, this, this. So talk to me. That, that's, that's what you'd say to the people. So there's always, there's always a reason for them to talk to you back because now it's not just you courting them. You're saying you're big enough because you've done so many things that they could court you too. Yeah. And you'll love this too, because I think that this is part of why we're here too, is you're, you take the most interest in all of my interviews and that enables me to talk to you about the book and other things that I'm doing. Of and course. this happens all the time with people I interview because I interview a lot of famous people. So if someone's not interested in my research, they might be interested in one of my interviews and that creates the conversation. And now I can get them interested in something else I'm doing. Right. So I also look at all, everything I'm doing as a way to pull people in and depending on what people are interested in. And I think, I think, I think people make two mistakes. One I've already talked about, which is that they sit by the phone and wait for the magic call to come. So that never happens. Um, or, or, or it happens, but it doesn't go the way they want, and they thought it was going to be easy, and they just get disappointed and drop off the radar. Uh, the second thing is that I think people stop. So, like for instance, they build the popular blog, and maybe they monetize it with some ads, and so they're paying the rent with it, and they're like, "Okay, this is good," and they just stop. They stop leveraging. They stop brainstorming and being creative about what the next step could be. And I think you're always saying, "What's the next?" How do I take these disparate things that I've built that are related to connect the dots to create the next platform and build exactly. on top of that? So I think I think always pushing to that next level is important. And by the way, we haven't even started talking that, about the that book. Is that is literally, it's one of the through lines of my whole career is what you picked up. The other one is I had to always fight really hard for everything. Like I was saying with getting a book deal, being rejected by every publisher three times over, but it's been, my whole life's been like but, that. But I didn't even get into my the college I wanted to first time around. They said I wasn't special enough. And then when I when I got, uh, you know, to get an internship at Reebok, it took me over a year because they were giving internships to, to the sons and daughters of executives. So I had to break through that and to get a job at EMC. When I graduated, it was eight months, meeting 15 people, three different jobs, like barely getting that. And it's always... It's always been like that. But I think that's the case. I think that's the case for everyone. I know exactly. But when I struggle, it I always persevere. I always figure out how to overcome that. And so it's built up an enormous amount of res resiliency. Yeah. It's and, still hard though. And you know, we were talking about earlier, you don't waste time feeling sorry for yourself. It's just okay, you I didn't get in this do door, I gotta get <laughs> you sir, you and I definitely don't have time to waste to I, feel bad. I for wasted ourselves. a long time feeling sorry for myself and then I stopped at some point. Uh maybe still occasionally I feel sorry for myself. I don't know. Um, so I want to read the first, the first line of one of the first chapters in the book. This is, it, this is like the introduction to the book. Um, the purpose of this book is to help you build stronger relationships with your teammates so you can be a more effective leader and have a more fulfilling work experience. So I'm not as much interested in that as <laughs> replacing the word teammates with X so you can be a more effective success and have a more fulfilling life. So, so, cause I think all of your techniques in this book satisfy that formula yeah. as well. So 
let, let's talk about this. We, we, I think a lot of it goes down to, you know, uh, uh, how you kind of, you know, op, like you even have a chapter, optimize your productivity, find, you know, how, how do you, uh, set your priorities straight so that you can, um, so you don't waste as much time on things that aren't as pleasurable for you. How do you find the right people to, uh, bring into your life? How do you, uh, boost your creativity? All of these things are throughout the book, but they apply for any career, not just being a leader, Yeah. but let's, let's talk about that. How do you, you know, again, given that we're, we're, we're only going to talk a couple of minutes about each thing, what would you say is the first two or three steps for optimizing your productivity? How I, do you optimize your productivity? Because obviously you're very productive. Yeah, I think you have to take a, a real holistic look at everything you're currently doing and where you're spending your time. And one of the things I found from even previous research is what manager, managers and leaders are looking for when promoting are people who can best prioritize tasks. So look at all your tasks and figure out what's most important to do when. For me, it's I need before 11 o'clock in the morning, I have to do the most important work, the things that require the most emotional capital. Wait, you mentioned, by the way, and and this is based on, um, I think, research from Dan Ariely. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the brain is most creative around 10 a.m. Um, but so Dan mentions in his research that if uh, whatever time you wake up, usually two hours after that, your brain is peaking for the next two hours. So if you wake up at eight from 10 to 12 or from 10 to one is your most creative period. So you mentioned in the book, you wake up at 7.30 a.m. Yeah, I'm even now at six in the morning. So probably then <laughs> like eight, 8 a.m. to 10 or 8 a.m. to 11 is your most creative. Your brain is at its peak performance yeah. of the day. And then and after lunch, it like shuts off after lunch. Right, but and this is true for everyone. This is yeah. not, it's true on a bell curve for everyone, this, but this is what Dan's research shows the average person has their most creative hours during during that period between two to four, two to five hours after waking up. So And then uh, I do goals too. So I don't do 10-year goals anymore, but I do annual goals. You know, I and it's all like, you know, I need to do seven research studies and it's a checklist. That's what it looks like. So it's three-tier. It's what do I need to do today and this week? And then what do I need to do this year? And then what I do is um, I break it up into five personal and five professional. So it could be visit two countries. And then, you know, I check off Costa Rica this year was the, the big country I visited. And then Manchester uh, I'm visiting in November. And so those are my two international trips. And then, um, you know, for research studies, it'll be six, seven, eight research studies. And then every time I get funded and, and fully execute one of those studies, I mark a check. And then those are daily. Those are daily too. So like that is what I have to accomplish in a year. And then I backtrack and I say, okay, in order to do that one study, uh, you know, I have to get a sponsor. I have to, um, you know, come up with the theme and the questions. Those need to be approved. Then I, we need to field the study. Then I need to analyze the data. And then I conduct a promotional campaign based on the data to get media attention to serve the client. So, so, so it's that whole process. And I break up that process on a, on a weekly basis that enables me to check it off on my goal sheet uh, eventually. So, so uh, in terms of prioritizing, you know, goals change. Like, as you, every day you learn more. And so when you learn enough, you might say, ah, this goal I had two months ago, I've learned so much in the past two months, I don't really want this as a goal anymore. So goals have a tendency to change. But on a daily basis, you kind of, when you wake up, you know what you're going to be doing for the day, you, you prioritize tasks. 
and you make sure the most important one is from 10 a.m. to 12 or whatever. So like for me, sometimes it's hard though. Like I have podcast, I'm an angel investor. I do stand-up comedy right here. Uh, I, I help run a, a pretty significant business. I have relationships. I'm a parent. Uh, it's hard to prioritize. Everything seems equally important. Like how would I pr prioritize? I think it's probably the illusion that it's all important. It's, it's not about the fact that you have many things. It's about what you're doing when. And so if, you know, parenting requires a lot of effort and emotional, like, you know, uh, energy, then maybe that happens in the night, maybe in the evening. So you have to take a good look at everything you're doing. And like I said in the book, it's like work-life integration. Like how do you integrate everything you want to do professionally and personally throughout the day? And so many people use their calendar. Everyone says, you know, if it's not on the calendar, it doesn't exist. Why not start putting personal things on the calendar? That's what I do. I'm able to like meet friends for coffee and then go back and do do a project and maybe write. And and so like I integrate it, but my calendar reflects my integration. So so I do I do some version of that, which is probably the same as you do, which is I know because I know that same thing you know from, you know, Dan Ariely's been on this podcast. I'm sure you've interviewed him. Uh, I make sure, so writing is always the most creative thing. Not necessarily the most <clears throat> important, but the most creative thing I have to do. So I make sure before 11 a.m., it's only focused on writing. There's almost, no, unless like a podcast guest can only make it at 9 a.m., which is rare, there's nothing before 11 a.m. And then... We usually do podcast guests around now, which is you know roughly you know somewhere between noon and three or whatever, and uh, uh, and then business business stuff actually is easier. It doesn't require as much business. Not that business is trivial, but it doesn't require the same kind of creative mental effort. Like it's a matter of you know talking to people and seeing what people's needs are and so on. So I usually reserve that for later in the day when my the the real creative side of my brain is probably more tired. Yeah. No, I totally. I mean, writing for sure in the, the first few hours of the day, I think is so important, especially because, you know, you. I think you need to set yourself up for success the night before too. So the night before, I'm like, okay, this this is what I need to accomplish the next day, and then when I wake up, I don't have to think about what I need to accomplish. It's already written out for me. But I think writing for sure is something that you should do early in the morning because so it's almost like you need to put into because buckets, you need like, a you need a fresh fresh eyes fresh you know fresh uh, you know day and morning to inspire you and be like oh this is this is a new idea I just had I I can riff on this so it's, it's almost it's almost like you need to prioritize according to buckets like the, here are the creative activities that are important to me here are the business activities that are important to me here are the relationship activities that are important to me and there's different times of the day that are ideal for yeah. each one and the for podcast you. for you is it's a conversation. This is you're just yeah. being you. This is whether you think it's hard or easy. It's just it. It feels natural to you. It's not like you have to sit down in a private space and like really think about okay, how do I want this article to come off? This is just a conversation. Right. We could be anywhere right now. And so, so then it seems really the important thing after that is surrounding yourself with good people, which is which is like you said, you know, the people in the workplace who are least happy have no friends. So. Presumably that works for life too. The people who are least happy in anything have zero friends. So what's... Uh, well, what people feel very isolated in the workplace and outside the workplace. So in the workplace, we've moved to an environment where two things are happening. One is the workplace is becoming very decentralized. 
a third yeah, of the global about. workforce work from home, yet two-thirds of them are isolated and disengaged. 85% of the global workforce is disengaged or actively disengaged. And what so does it mean, are, uh, disengaged? Disengaged as in like not much communication, not feeling excited about work, not you know, not um, you know, finding meaning in work. And so they're kind of checked out. They're kind of might be looking for their next job. And what we found in, in the Virgin Pulse study, which I thought was really interesting, is if you work from home, you're much less likely to want to long-term create your company. So, so you're long-term you, what? Long-term, you're much less likely to want to long-term create your company, meaning that you're less loyal to your company. You, you don't see yourself there for the long-term because you're not getting those social interactions. See, the, the things that don't change, James, is the fact that there's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So after safety and security and food and shelter, we need love and friendships. Otherwise, we'll never be self-actualized. So if you are isolated and you're not getting a lot of contact because you're working from home all the time, I've worked from home for eight years, I felt isolating and, and lonely at times, um, you are kind of checked out. You don't feel like you're as committed and, and connected to your organization as a result of that. And so you know, if there's another opportunity that comes about or someone's willing to pay you an extra $5,000, $10,000, you're more likely to accept that. Whereas if you have very good friends at work, you're going to the office at least sometimes and you have friends, best friends, your manager treats you right. Even if someone comes, another company comes in with you know another $5,000, you're probably going to say no because you have a lot more to lose. You're losing friends, you're losing a family, you're losing people who are supporting you in your career, which counts for a lot, especially because we work so hard now. Well, and I mean, this is this goes back to evolutionary times, like we're ultimately we're tribal animals. Connection, you know, fires off. You know, connecting with anybody in a friendly way fires off serotonin, oxytocin, all these happy neurochemicals. Um, so let's say, like for me, I work at home. The only time I ever go out is, let's say, to do these podcasts. What should I do to improve my life satisfaction and connect more to people? I think you do the podcast because you're yearning for that connection. I think that's part of it. I think you're an interesting person. You want to meet other interesting people, for sure. I don't think anyone could deny that. I think you love building platforms. But I think part of why you do it is because it makes you feel more connected and like, and that you're not alone. Because people like us growing up, I mean, you feel pretty alone because a lot of people don't understand you. And so if you can find other people who are the outliers in our society who are the astronauts, the magicians, like people who are doing things that are, you know, not in the norm, not a doctor, a lawyer, um, or accountant, then you feel more together with society. You, you feel more included. You feel like people understand you because you understand them because everyone, you know, people can have dreams when they're growing up, but not everyone actually executes on those dreams. And it might be because of fear, but I think everyone wants to feel loved and be understood. And so, so anytime people understand me, like you understand me, like I, you know, show so much love for you because when I was growing up, I felt very misunderstood. And I think in the workplace too, people want to be understood. And because people are spending so much time sending emails back and forth, I think there's a lot of miscommunication that happens in the workplace. So the theme of the book is, and the main idea is to let technology be a, a bridge to human connection, not a barrier. Let it get you to that room or that social event. But if you're in that uh, room or, or social event or even in the subway or anywhere and you're still looking you know, at your phone, then you're not really present and not with that person. By the way, just to, just to tell you, uh, you, know, we, you know Yuval Harari. Have you ever interviewed him? No, I've never interviewed him. So, so we had him on uh, last week. 
and he didn't have a phone. He doesn't own a phone. So this is now day six of me. I have not used, used my phone at all. Wow. And it's very Did he challenge you? Huh? Did he challenge you? No, no, but I decided phone? if he's going to do this, I try to learn from all of my guests. Like if he's going to do it and he's arguably one of the smartest people on the planet, uh, all right, I'm going to try it and see if my life is better. So it's only day six, but it's actually really hard. It's like stopping carbs. Like you, 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 there's this enormous craving. To Not like, having your phone is the new vacation. Yeah. Because if you don't have it, you it's not feel even a vacation, free. though. I, I, no, I, the problem is the craving. Like you feel a craving for it after a few hours. If I'm online for something, I can't believe I don't have my phone on me. I go insane. But, and it's only day six. I'm trying to see how long I can do this. But uh, let's say you're at home, you work at home, and I don't know, let's just say you're customer service for some big giant company and you're never going to have connection really with the other workforce. To have more life satisfaction, how many people should you reach out to? in the day to what's what's like the minimum number of people you should connect with on a friend level so that you feel better about your life it's not about number it's about the how deep those relationships are so people want to bring their full self into the workplace they're doing that anyways right if you have problems or suffer from mental illness outside the workplace it's not like you walk into the workplace and you don't have bipolar or you don't have anxiety Right. And so I think you have to have leaders in today's society that are empathetic and can meet people where they are and support them and give them a mental health day off or just support their human, basic human needs. I think that's so important. And, you know, if you're customer service, regardless of your position within the company, you need to be able to have more emotional conversations, talk about your personal life because. You know, we're working 47 hours a week on average in the United States alone. And, you know, with the phone and all these devices, it's almost like 24 7, right? Yeah, people we're like are always average, on duty. People are on their phone an average of five hours a day. Yeah. And that's true. And then the other thing is we tap our devices over 2,600 times a day and look at our phones at least every 12 minutes. So it's, it's, we're always using these technology devices and it's created the illusion of connection when in reality we feel more isolated and lonely and we have a loneliness epidemic in the United States and abroad. About half of Americans are lonely. 40,000 people in Japan um, die from loneliness every year. In the UK, 9 million people are lonely. 200,000 adults haven't spoken to a close friend or relative in the past month. And it's so loneliness like, like, is attributed like, to 2.5 billion pounds um, every year of, of cost for companies in the UK. So like if you personally were lonely, let's say, I don't know, you you were in your apartment for a week or two doing nothing and you decided, okay, I need to take some strategic or tactical steps to not be lonely. I'm suffering from depression and loneliness. Uh, what would be for you personally, what would be the first two or three things you would do? Yep. Number one is I integrate my personal life with my work life. So I'll have meetings throughout the day, but then I'll get coffee with a friend or we'll get dinner or lunch. Um, so I like to integrate personal things into the workday. That that's work-life integration 101. Um, the second thing is with your team, we have a weekly team meeting every week. You know, noon on Mondays. Well, let's say you have no team. You're just trying to cure loneliness. Well, I think part of curing loneliness is to do something consistently. To know that every week or every day you're going to have at least one social interaction. Mm -hmm. Because the biggest predictor of a long life, and they found this out when they were studying Sardinia, Italy, a blue zone where people live the longest, is social integration. It's 
you know, even just going outside and going to a, like a grocery store and saying hello to the cashier, that counts as part of your social integration where you're getting your interactions every single day. So don't just look at it as like deep relationships, but it's just many different connection points throughout a given day. Mm. And for me, I call my parents every single day. Mm. That's one interaction. I'm hearing their voice. I'm not texting them. Even my mom is addicted to texting now, which is scary. At the Apple store, they showed her how to send an emoji. And now it's, I get like a thousand hearts per day. And, I'm, and I just, I just call it. I'm like, no, I can't even like, so I don't know what to, how to respond to them. So uh, I think it's, you know, creating those habits. If you call, I call my parents every single day. I make sure I'm talking to my friends regularly. I talk to about eight to 10 friends almost every single day. So I'm That's just, con I'm like a social animal. I'm constantly Are you an interacting. You don't introvert. seem like an extrovert. I'm an introvert. You know, I think a lot of people view, um, introverts as extroverts in the author speaker community because when we're on stage people are like they must be an extrovert but it's actually not true i'm very introverted and i think the biggest benefit to being introverted especially if you're like interviewing is just incredibly like you take a step back you're very thoughtful you're really listening instead of just talking and i think you can learn so much more by just listening so so now from the leader perspective let's say you're, and again, someone could be a leader at work or they could be a leader in their personal life or a leader of a family or whatever. Uh, but let's say the workforce, you have, let's say, different divisions and offices around the country uh, and they're somewhat disconnected from the main office where you're the leader. How would you establish you know, connection points or, or how would you establish personal connection so they don't feel isolated from you? Yeah, I think that one of the biggest things is only 20% of companies have social gatherings and offsites. Yet we found in the study that that's the most important thing that people are looking for when establishing. Oh, I hate offsites. This means you have to leave my. I have to leave my block then. Yeah, I never leave this block. I think video conferencing is really big. We did a study of over 25,000 employees around the world and found that what's happening with technology is that people yearn for human connection so much. It's the reason why we have like adult day camps and, and uh, yoga retreats and big festivals. Uh, so people want that. And technology is actually bringing out a lot, some of our human instincts uh, because people in our study, they, they check their tone more, they pick up the phone more because they need it. You have to get it somehow, right? If There's a reason why solitary confinement is so bad. Um, you know, there's one study in the book about you know, people, uh, you know, in, uh, you know, who didn't get social interaction for a certain amount of time and they just went crazy. It like it deteriorated their brain. Wow. Yeah. So, 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 I mean, there is so much useful stuff in this book. Like, you know, you have this whole, and there's exercises and there's tests, like you have this activity for eliminating procrastination and that's right inside three actions to optimize productivity. Then there's the whole, uh, here's uh, empathy translates into real business results and how to be, you know, all the different ways becoming an empathetic leader. I also love these different self-assessments you have, like how digitally distracted am I? And you have uh, uh, a whole test for this. Um, and then the big assessment, the work connectivity index. I work with a professor at George Mason University to do, and it's the WIC and, or WCI. And basically you take it and it tells you the strength of the relationships you have um, among your teammates. Yeah, so you can so, have a very low connectivity score or a very high connectivity score. And if you have a low one, it, it means that you're not getting enough social interaction with your teammates, so they're at risk of leaving. 
You know, and it's interesting, like you, you, you have a section, um, which I bookmarked the power of face-to-face engagement in practice. And it was, I think it was about a year and a half ago, we started doing this podcast only in person. Like nobody, doesn't matter how important they are, nobody can call in. And I think it's just, it 10 X the quality of the podcast. Cause nothing beats face-to-face engagement. Doesn't matter what. And, uh, in any case, I think, so the, the book is back to human, uh, by Dan Shaw Bell. Did I say it right? You nailed it. It's good enough. It's good enough. It's Shaw Bell. Back to human <laughs> and not only get it for all of these ways to improve your work life, like, you know, about prioritizing, about, uh, uh, being more productive about when to use technology, about avoiding procrastination, about engaging employees and building everything. There's so many different things. This, this is like a great uh, book of techniques and activities and exercises and tests. But I think it, it's really important, not just for work life, but for for personal life, home life, your 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 activities. And uh, again, Dan, you're someone to emulate in terms of your your career map, which we sort of like, isolated your 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 magic formula for building success and selling companies and and getting bigger and bigger starting from from scratch uh i think that's i think that's your next book should be to kind of scrappy yeah no no your, your next book is to write the dan map and everyone should like kind of figure out how their life and career kind of fits into the dan map so to see how they can reach their ultimate successes so thanks so much, Dan, for for coming on the Thank podcast. Thank you, James. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate and now all this time. I'm interviewing you for my podcast, Five Questions with Dan Shawbell. I I am looking for it. What, okay, what's the name of that podcast? Five Questions with Dan Shawbell. Okay, check it out. Five Questions with Dan Shawbell. I'm gonna be on it. <laughs> Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.